0: Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Today by the very incredible Jess, who you may know as Jess Carrie Writes on Instagram. She is an author um, and I'm so honoured she's here. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Do we want to introduce yourself? Maybe introduce your family?
1: Sure. I'm Jess. I apologise for my slightly croaky voice. I've got whatever the latest daycare bug is. Um, I have a little firecracker of a son, Jasper, who is four and a half. Wow. And there's my husband, and the dog that's our little family of course yeah (laughs) of course the dog i've been writing for a long 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 time last year my sister and i self-published a kid's picture book that sort of looks at how maternal mental health can present in a way that kids can understand yeah which was really really fun to work on and then the book that's coming out later this year will be a memoir about my time looking after and being full-time carer to a sick baby while managing my own mental health. So their kids' book is called Mummy Is Your Brain Okay? You can have a look at that on my website. We're really lucky a lot of libraries have jumped on board, so you can always check if your library has it. Um, and the memoir is going to be called Not Enough, and the little subtitle bit, I guess, is a memoir of motherhood, mental illness, and making it through. Mm, a big, big topic, yes.
0: Um. So you've had a history, if I'm right, with depression and anxiety, and just to confirm your concept, journey wasn't the greatest I believe
1: so (laughs) how was all that? Yeah I was actually talking to someone about this uh, last week the week before and I said it was it was just a debacle from start to finish which I can laugh about now as so many of us do laugh about it later down the track. Um, Yeah I've had a history of depression and anxiety many 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 years and then you know we'd sort of had issues conceiving and then had a horrible pregnancy and then my son was born with a lot of medical drama associated so it's just one thing after another
0: yeah um where do you feel like you want to start your story is there a moment that stands out for you oh so many
1: (laughs) um I think one of the big ones would be once we found out that I actually was pregnant it was just a oh dear god what have I done like this was not a good idea I'm not Mm. I can't do this um this is what we wanted obviously and it's very exciting but then it was that oh I don't I don't know if I'm going to be very good at this um you know I've I've got my own mental health drama and I've got to you know keep myself alive and keep myself healthy and oh my god now I'm gonna have to look after something else and what have I done so yeah it was just like oh like, I wanted this, but was this really a good idea? I'm not so sure now.
0: <laughs> and just before um, becoming pregnant, in terms of your
1: mental health, did you feel like you were managing that? Um, I don't think I've ever felt completely on top of my mental health until fairly recently. I had been sort of in and out of psychologists, on and off antidepressants for a while. In 2016, I was starting to feel really, really like things were not okay, um, really burnt out, really struggling. And my husband was getting a bit burnt out at work as well. So we took four months off and we traveled. Wow. And I, I made the decision to come off my antidepressants before traveling because I found that they didn't so much make me feel happier, but they tended to numb a lot of my feelings. I thought if I'm going to, you know, take four months to travel around the world, I want to actually experience it. So I decided to come off the antidepressants then. Um felt amazing while we're overseas, which everyone finds really weird. Um, I'm a really anxious introvert usually. I think it's just because, you know, if no one knows me and there's no expectations of me, I don't have to pretend, which I'm sure a lot of people listening will probably understand. Um, Yeah, we made the decision while we're away. Yeah, we sort of (laughs) took it from there. (laughs) We found out, we don't really know when it happened, but my ovaries had just stopped working we still don't know how or why Um, I'd always had really really heavy painful periods as a teenager and a doctor when I was younger said I'll you know could end up with trouble conceiving later and at the time thought well I don't want kids so it doesn't really matter so you know they said well we're going to pop you on the the contraceptive pill because that'll help sort of temper the pain and I'd been on it ever since and it wasn't until I came off it that realized I wasn't getting my period anymore Um, you know one thing led to another yeah your, your ovaries aren't actually producing any eggs? Go, oh, okay, <laughs> great. A lot of medicine is amazing. Mm. Luke and I, my husband and I were both very adamant that we weren't going to go down the IVF path. Um, we did not think that my mental health would survive that. We've seen other people who've been through it and we've seen how devastating it can be. So we'd sort of said, if there's an option we can try before that, we'll give that a try. Um, there was so lots of drugs lots of injections all that sort of thing that eventually I think it was the fifth or sixth round of trying that that cycle worked and yeah then we found out that I was going to have hyperemesis the whole way through oh, and my dear lord, that is a thing if I will put my hand up I'll be the first to admit I didn't think it was a real thing wow I was wrong yeah. I was so wrong <laughs> it was Debilitating. I couldn't get out of bed in the morning without throwing up. I'd roll over and I was sick straight away. Um, The first I think probably five or six months of the pregnancy, I was losing weight instead of putting it on. For a while, I lived off pretty much nothing but potatoes. Like there were potato gems and there were chips and there were mashed potatoes and there were roast potatoes. And you'd think with all that starch, maybe I'd start putting on some weight. I did not. So then, you know, like a lot of guilt as well from that. Like, oh my God, I'm not even eating well. I can't exercise. That couldn't get myself into work because motion set it off really badly. So to get up and get on a train for 45 minutes in the morning, couldn't do it things at work didn't end up very well. I don't know how to put this diplomatically, but um, other colleagues were not very kind about the situation I was in. Yeah, so I ended up being made redundant about three or four weeks before I would have qualified for paid maternity leave. So like I said, it was just shambles. (laughs) How did that all play on your mental health? It was awful. We were just because, you know, we didn't have enough going on. We'd also bought a new house somewhere in between, so we had to move house as well. So, like, I remember getting the phone call from work telling me that basically I didn't have a job anymore while I was, you know, running back and forth from packing boxes to the bathroom to throw up. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Like, when am I going to catch a break here? Um, But during the days, like, my husband's obviously at work. I didn't talk to anyone. I didn't see anyone. I stopped contacting friends. I absolutely did not go out. There's no way in hell I would have, you know, gone out for dinner or a birthday or anything like that. I just, I did not leave the house. At that time, we were living in a two story townhouse, and to get from upstairs to downstairs, like that was a saga. Like that took all my energy some days, and it would be some days literally crawling from the couch to the bathroom. I had nothing left. There was nothing in me to even physically get up and walk. So I would often just, You know, my day would be sitting on the couch with a bucket next to me, the dogs curled up on top of me. I'd have something on on the TV just because I I couldn't be in the silence because, you know, when we don't like being alone with our own thoughts, silence is evil. You know, um, yes, there's always something on in the background It was music or whatever. Mm. Um, most days I would not make a sound, would not speak to anyone until my husband got home from work. And even then it wasn't much of a conversation because <laughs> I just didn't have the energy to even to talk. So it was, yeah, very, very isolating and then compounded by that guilt because everyone tells you you know this is meant to be the best time of your life and you're so lucky and you should be so happy and like but I'm not I'm miserable this is awful
0: In terms of support for both mental and physical health how were you taken care of during pregnancy
1: Um I was lucky I had a very 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 good obstetrician he was very on the ball he knew from the start about my mental health so he was quite proactive with that. Like there was never any pressure for him that, you know, you shouldn't be on antidepressants. Like That was my choice. I decided like I'd been off them while we were overseas and I didn't start back when we got back. So I thought, well, let's just do it, I guess, without. Mm. In retrospect, it's always easier to see, maybe not such a great idea. Um, but my husband, I know everyone says, oh, you know, my husband's amazing. Truly, he, is, he was amazing. My biggest fear in having kids had always been I don't want to leave him having to look after me and a kid. Mm. And like we've been together 19 years now and Jasper's four and a half, so we've been together for a long time by the time we decided, yes, let's let's do this. So, you know, poor guy, he kind of knew what he was in for. But you don't want to put anyone in that position when you love them. You don't want them to, you don't want to be a burden to people you love, which again, I think having listened to all the other episodes you've done, I think that's a pretty common theme, but he it was always you know okay we've got this appointment do we want to catch a train there together do you want to drive there do you want to go on your own do you want me there like how do you want to do this so I was very fortunate he was a support network Um, we hadn't really told anyone either that we were doing fertility treatment so we chose to go through it alone Um, then when I was pregnant I mean what can anyone do right like you're sick you're just sick. Yeah. was taking all the medication that I was being given. I was trying not to overexert myself or anything. I was still sick. Nothing short of a miracle was going to be helpful at that point. So, yeah, it was just it was what it was. Front of my mind was I need to make sure this baby is safe. Yeah. That is my number one job. If that means that I need to get to an appointment to have it checked, then that's what I'm going to do. And if it means that I'm ridden off for the rest of the week, doesn't matter
0: leading into birth how did you feel because obviously when jasper arrived you got
1: a surprise i guess oh boy did we (laughs) Um, yeah it's funny I, i listened to lots of you know podcasts and that sort of things leading into birth so i was trying to prepare myself as much as anyone can be and i kept finding it really really odd hearing all these women talking about their birth plans And I'd said that to my husband and he's just gone, do you not have a plan? I said, no, I just want it out safely. I don't care how it's done. The whole pregnancy I had convinced myself something was going to go wrong. Mm. You know, my ovaries weren't working. There's something obviously defective in me. I'm not confident I'm carrying this baby safely. So when when it came time for birth and the obstetrician started talking about it, I said, "Just, just get him out safely. I don't care what you need to do. I don't care what happens. Just get him out safely. And the drama continued because our obstetrician was on paternity leave when Jasper <laughs> decided to make his entrance. So, you know, we'd spent all this time getting comfortable and confident and having faith in this obstetrician. And then we had his fill-in and said, who was lovely, and he, he was amazing considering everything that happened. But, yeah, the birth was not good for any of us. It was fairly traumatic. We did not know that there was going to be anything I guess wrong if you will I don't like using that word and a lot of people have used that to us over the journey Um, Mm. a lot of people have said well did you know there was something wrong with the baby before he was born so I know I know people don't mean to be offensive but you hear these things you're like hang on a minute there's nothing wrong with my baby thank you very much but we didn't know there were going to be any medical issues as far as we knew he measured well the whole way through had a strong heartbeat the whole way through everything was fine until it wasn't. So my waters had ruptured on a Sunday morning, and we got into the hospital on the Sunday evening. And they gave me the antibiotics. And they said, "Look, if you haven't spontaneously gone into labor by seven o'clock tomorrow morning, we need to induce you." Um, which I understood. That was fine. Like I said, game plan was get the baby out safely. So sure enough, had to be induced in the morning. I was not prepared for how quickly things went from zero to a hundred when you were induced mm. um i had a bit of anxiety over the birthing process but in the last couple of weeks i just thought look i know it's going to be over mm. like this sickness has gone on and on and on that's been horrific the birth i know it's not going to last for another nine months so i got to the point that i was a little bit anxious but also like, i'm confident let's just get this done like i just want this baby aside right now i'm i'm cannot keep doing this so we sort of went in like yep let's just get it done if you know having some pain relief for me meant that I was calmer and less anxious I figured that would be a better way to bring my baby into the world than me freaking out um and they said oh you know maybe just like get up and try to walk off the contractions so I get up and I started walking and I just collapsed so my husband was like that's it we're getting an epidural let's go so we did the epidural That was about two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, Jasper was born at quarter to nine at night. It was a really long day. (laughs) it's a really long night. So we we sort of had monitors on both me and Jasper because things weren't going as quickly as they'd hoped. Both of our heart rates jumped up really quickly all of a sudden and you could just see on the obstetrician's faces, okay, we need to get this baby out right now. So I had an episiotomy. Jasper got vacuumed out. It all happened very, very, very quickly because, you know, panic station. So they got Jasper out. They cleaned him up, I guess. I, I really don't remember much of what happened after that. But, yeah, we, we held him. I don't remember him crying or anything. Um, I later found out that's because he didn't cry because he had to be resuscitated at birth, which I had no idea at the time. Um, we got to cuddle with him for about mm, five, ten minutes. Um, a nurse had my phone. I didn't even know where my phone came from, but she'd taken a photo of us. And then they called in the pediatrician. They said, Oh look, it's pretty normal when we've got a rough birth, we like to get the peat in just to make sure everything's okay. So he'd gone off to investigate Jasper and Luke had sort of followed along. At that point I'd lost almost a litre and a half of blood. Like my placenta was stuck. Like I just remember seeing the obstetrician like wrenching out chunks of placenta. Like he could just see in his face. He was like, Crap, we gotta get you stitched up right now. I don't know what was going on. I was in shock. Then the obstetrician sort of pokes his head over my shoulder while I'm being stitched up and he's like, do you understand what I'm saying? There's something wrong with your baby. We need to take him away to special care. We need to go now. I've sort of turned around and Luke's just white. At that point, the epidural had worn off so I could feel the stitching up going on. I had no idea where he was. I didn't know what was wrong. Um, a nurse came in like, oh, you can call your family now to tell them the good news. Like, what good news? Like, I don't even have a baby right now. Like, I gave birth, but there's no baby here. So... Yeah, it was it was warped time, it was so confusing, like the blood loss, the shock, the trauma of it all. It was like being on another planet. It was just so such an out of body experience. Yeah. By the time I finally got back to whatever room I was staying in the night, like where's my husband? Where's my baby? What's going on? And I was sort of being plugged there on my own. Jasper was in the special care nursery. When I got to see him again, he had a feeding tube in one nostril and oxygen in the other nostril. The pediatrician was spot on. It's a really, really rare condition. And he picked it up, which was incredibly lucky because I've spoken now to so many other families around the world who didn't have it picked up. Um, and it's dangerous. It's really dangerous. So the condition that Jasper was born with is called Pierre Robin sequence. It's about a one in 20-ish thousand live births. What happened was his chin didn't grow while he was in the womb, um, so lower jaw. So he was born with a really, really tiny pushback chin, which meant that his tongue can't come forward. So every time you lay him on his back, his tongue would roll into his throat and close his windpipe. So couldn't breathe. He also, because of the way the chin didn't come forward and his tongue was sort of tucked up, he was born with a cleft palate as well. So he also couldn't drink anything. So you know babies all they can do is sort of breathe and drink and he couldn't do either mm-hmm. so yeah we were really 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 fortunate that the pediatrician picked it up otherwise you know had he been laid down on his back and no one had picked it up he would have stopped breathing yeah so that sort of was the beginning of the medical journey because then there was more more diagnoses more conditions but yeah we at that point I'm thinking what have I done like this this has to be my fault. I've done something wrong. All I was meant to do was just keep this baby safe in my womb for nine months. I couldn't even get that right. How am I going to keep him safe now that he's actually here? Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: You know, I've got this baby that I've held him for five minutes of his life and that's it. Like he'd gotten to about a week old. I hadn't changed a nappy. I hadn't fed him. I hadn't bathed him like nothing, absolutely nothing. And I just thought there's there's no way I can do this even if we make it through this kid is going to hate me because I was not there for him and you know that's that's my one job I'm meant to you know keep this baby safe and be there for him and I can't even do that like I was right the whole time like this is an awful idea I'm going to be an awful mum and so you know you spiral and you spiral and just that oh that first week or so I just I thought I I shouldn't be here um I'm going to be detrimental. I'm going to cause more harm than good. This is a terrible idea. I've done the wrong thing.
0: And I mean, we know hyperemesis. We know a traumatic birth um, or where you're feeling out of control. We know the effects of that on mental health. We also know special care nursery and NICU, the effects that that has on mental health. And this Mm -hmm. is all just compounding for you. Absolutely. I guess... My question before we talk about the NICU because it was two months nearly that um, Jasper was in NICU yeah was anyone
1: I'm curious how you were nurtured during that time i've I've had this discussion again with a few other mums who have had kids through the NICU and we've sort of all said the same thing that when you're pregnant you are you know this very important person and, you know, everyone's so worried about your health and your well-being because you're growing this life and, you know, you're amazing. And then the baby comes out and especially, like this happens normally, but when the baby is sick as well, you're forgotten about. You're the vessel who has been discarded and now we need to focus on this sick baby or healthy baby, whatever the case may be. And it's I've spoken to mums who've had sick babies and who've had healthy babies and they've mostly all felt that way, that, you know, once the baby is out, you're sort of pushed aside a little bit and you're not so important anymore, which I I definitely felt. I don't think it was an intentional thing. Um, you certainly learn very quickly who your real friends are when you go through something like what we went through. Um, you know, there were people who were not comfortable with it, who, you know, our, our sick baby made them feel uncomfortable and our experience made them uncomfortable and we lost touch with friends and I I did have a couple of friends who would you know text me and say how are you Mm. like I don't want the Jasper update how are you going but mostly it was either how's Jasper or people just didn't know what to say so they said nothing at all Mm. um which does seem to be a pretty common experience for parents with NICU babies unfortunately were you able to say I'm not okay I need help it took a while um I I was fortunate in that my obstetrician like we'd been I'd been pretty honest with him from the start about my mental health issues and he once I got to almost the third trimester he said I want you to link in with a psychologist now so you have someone to talk with before the birth and you'll have someone to follow through we assumed that given regular depression was an issue, that postpartum depression would be very much present. Mm-hmm. So my GP was also on board. The plan was to go back on it to antidepressants, you know, when I was ready to after the birth, but certainly not leaving it for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, you know, the GP was ready with the medication. The psychologist was ready. So I had all the supports there ready to go. But then when you've got a sick baby, you don't worry about what what's going on for you. Like Jasper was transferred over to the Royal Children's day after he was born. And I got really lucky there was a bed in the maternity ward that had opened up the same day. So I just by pure sheer luck, I was able to stay at the children's with him. Um, so you know, it was up and down from my room to his room all the time. And that was amazing having that opportunity there. But that also meant that all my follow-up appointments were completely neglected. So Like, none of the physical checks, none of the mental checks, it was all thrown by the wayside. Um, I knew that I needed help and follow-up, but I also knew that there was no way in hell I was not following my baby there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it it took longer than it probably should have for me to go back and see the psychologist and and all that sort of thing. I knew I was not okay. Um, I absolutely knew I wasn't okay. I'm sure the nurses knew I wasn't okay, but... (sighs) like what do you when you've had your baby sort of ripped out of you and you know you've been told there's something wrong with him at that point we were still waiting on genetics testing to be done to tell us whether basically he was going to live or die um we didn't know if he was going to have any associated syndromes or conditions that that could end his life early so you know you've you've just told me that you don't know if my baby is going to live or die and you want me to go and see a a psychologist i don't think so i'm staying with my baby Mm -hmm. so that's yeah like we all knew I wasn't okay but we all knew I also wasn't leaving him so it was really hard
0: yeah
1: and so two months
0: in NICU I'm making an assumption here I'm assuming there were some surgeries and whatnot involved in this time many Yeah. yeah okay
1: yeah he he had his first surgery at four weeks old it was a pretty horrific surgery like, a, I guess, a facial reconstruction type one. Um, I won't go into details yeah. just in case anyone listening sure. is a bit squeamish. But it was it was nasty. He had to be kept in an induced coma for almost a week after the surgery. He was on morphine and fentanyl and everything. Like it was it was insane. Mm-hmm. Um, constantly having feeding tubes changed, um, x-rays, blood tests. Like There was not a single day. In that NICU that he did not have some sort of procedure or something done to him it was just absolutely relentless and uh, yeah getting through that first surgery uh, again you look back now and you think how the hell did we manage that I, d- I still don't know <laughs> I don't know it was it was awful it was really awful well, we I wanted to learn how to do things like changing his feeding tube because he couldn't drink from a bottle and he couldn't drink from a bottle until he was eight months old that was the first time he drank a full bottle on his own yeah. so we were trained how to do the tube feeding and then they've sort of said look as he gets a bit bigger and he gets handsier, yeah, he will start pulling out the feeding tube you guys can either learn how to replace it yourself or you can bring him back into hospital well there's no way I'm going into hospital every time he pulls out this tube so I was, okay teach me I'll do it and the nurses oh, are you sure about that it was really weird while we we're in the NICU, I, I call it that I learned to turn off mum mode and turn on nurse mode. Mm. and I, I know that it's probably not healthy to compartmentalize, but that was the only way I could get through it. Learning how to do all these procedures, like my anxiety was you know level 15. and if I'd stayed in that anxious mum mode, I was not going to be of any help to my baby whatsoever
0: yeah. and he
1: needed me he needed me to do what needed to be done. So it was day after day I would get into that hospital, I would like power down mum mode, power up nurse mode, you know, put the emotions to the side, like, okay, what do I need to learn? Show me what to do. And, you know, this my baby would be sitting there screaming while I'm trying to thread a feeding tube down his nostril and I'm just poker face, like no emotion, I felt nothing other than I've just got to get this in and tape it down and then once it was all in, then you sort of look back and go, oh, my God, what have I just done? Was that me? And then the anxiety ramped back up again. And to do it not just for a couple of days but over and over and over again. And then, you know, you're finally at a NICU and we get home and he's got more surgery so we're still back in and out of hospital and sleep studies and we are still got the feeding tube and everything. It's just completely relentless and you just think, if only I had time to breathe, then maybe I could look after me again, but I don't have time. Like There, there is no, there's no space. There's no time to breathe because this baby needs me and I don't have time to fall apart and I don't have time to address what's going on. Like, we spoke to one nurse and I remember her I remember her being really surprised that we'd learned how to do all the tube feeds and how to do all that sort of medical nursing side of things. And I sort of said to her, like, what else would you do? Like, if your baby is tube fed, you have to learn how to do it. And she, I remember her saying to me, not all parents do. There are parents that will leave their children in NICU for longer than they probably need to be here because they just they can't bring themselves to learning. Like, it never... It never even occurred to me that I could take a step back and let someone else do it. In my head, he's my child, therefore he's my responsibility, therefore I must be the one to do it. And that was a massive cause of a lot of my anxiety. Um, And that stopped me asking and accepting help because in my head, and it sounds, I know how stupid it sounds saying it out loud now, but at the time in my head, because he was in the NICU for so long, I had the nurses being his mum. Like I didn't I wasn't the one tucking him in when he woke up screaming at two o'clock in the morning. I wasn't the one feeding him at three o'clock in the morning. It was the nurses who did all that. So once that like, he finally got back home, despite the fact that I was absolutely drowning, I I in my head thought, Well, I've cheated at being a mum for this long because someone else has been doing it. So now I can't accept any help because I mean what does that make me like that's here's my kid I can't let other people come and hold him for an hour while I have a shower and wash my hair because I had that chance the nurses did all that for me and now here's my responsibility and I have to be able to do that otherwise people are going to know that I'm not a capable mum and they'll take him away from me and I I can't do that so it's you know the, the way you justify these things in your head and it's so easy when you look back or it's so easy if it was a friend saying it to be like, you know, that sounds ridiculous, right? No one's going to take your baby. But when you're in the middle of it, it's very, very, very real. And, you know, you're in the hospital and you've got a sick baby and you know, that, you know that your file will say that, you know, mother has mental illness or blah, blah, blah. And so all that's going through your head is if I'm not here and I'm not present and I'm not doing everything every single day, they're going to say, oh, yeah, that's a, the mentally unstable mum when she can't take that baby home. And it was just, oh, I, I can't let people know. Like I know I'm not a good mum, I know I'm a failure, but I can't let anyone else see that. I've, I've got to, I have to prove it. And, yeah, it's like I said, it's just a vicious cycle because you don't want to ask for help, you don't want to accept help, and it just keeps going. It is, it is a cycle because... It just
0: means we have to keep proving ourselves at that level and function at that level, yep. <laughs> which is unsustainable in the long run. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And it doesn't help anyone. No, no. And so your little boy, when you
1: finally got to bring him home, what was that like? So confusing. Yeah. Um, very, very, very vividly remember like we'd done all the final checks and the final wanes and got all our final instructions. And like he'd just come out of this massive surgery. So they'd drummed it into our head. You know, you're going to be weaning him off morphine. Like you need to make sure you stick to this schedule and you must, you have to feed him every three hours on the dot. Like we had so many full-on instructions and they'd gone through all that. And then they said, okay, well, I, I don't want to say we've loved having you here, but we have. And I've sort of looked at the nurse and she looked back at me and she said, you can go home now I said well I can't just take him and leave like do I not have to sign something to say that I'm taking him out of your care she's like no he's your baby you, you take him said, Jesus Christ this is real <laughs> like don't, are you sure we don't have to like sign a waiver that we're going to take him now and you're not going to be in charge and it was just so seems so bizarre to us that after all this time he was not hooked up to these monitors and it was, okay, off you go. And we got home and it was like, oh, crap, we don't have any help. Now what do we do? Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, Luke had a few weeks at home. But then when he went back to work, yeah, wow, it was terrifying. I remember the first day, like there are a lot of very, very blank spots in my memory through all the, the hard stuff. But very, very very vividly remember Luke went back to work and it was just me and Jasper and he had woken up from a nap and I just sort of had him in front of me. I was just looking at him. I just remember saying, what the hell do we do now? I I freaked right out. I panicked. I'm so used to nurses telling me if he's stable or not. I'm so used to looking at the machines. Like I knew exactly what every single monitor meant. I knew what every number should have been. I knew what to do if the numbers weren't what they were. I didn't have any of that at home was like, how do I know if he's okay or not today? Like, I haven't got anyone here. I've got no monitors. I've got no husband. I've got no nurses. What if something happens and it's like just completely spiraled? And I know you've spoken about like that health anxiety and I'd like never really had it until then. Mm. And it was just like, I don't know if he's okay or not. And it it just went in peaks and troughs over the next couple of months. I think people assume that you're going to be really happy and excited when you get your baby home. What I have learnt is that most NICU parents are not. You're not taking home a newborn. It's not the same thing. And, you know, people people would say to us things like, oh, you know, you must be so excited you can finally get him home and have that newborn experience. Like, oh, I can't. He's almost two months old and he's already had his face reconstructed. But this isn't the baby I gave birth to and we're not going to get that back. Or people, oh, you must be so excited you can go out now and do all those fun things. But I'm not taking my baby out and about. I can't. So that was really hard, that there was this expectation that we should be so happy and so grateful and, like, this is going to be amazing. And inside I'm thinking this this isn't what was meant to happen, this is not how it's meant to be, and I still don't think I can handle it. Like, I I still think that I am going to be more detrimental and helpful to this kid. So it was, yeah, really, really confronting coming home. The NICU became a second home to us. We. I spent more time there than I did in my own home. Um, I think for me, you expect to go home and that like that's your safe, familiar surrounding. But it's not anymore when you bring home a sick baby. Your home becomes an extension of the hospital. There, there's still the tube feeding and there's still the monitoring and there's still nurses coming in to check. It's not your sanctuary anymore. Like You bring home all that stuff from the hospital and then you combine that with the fact that A, you're a new mum. You're not sleeping. You don't know what the hell you're doing with this baby. They scream and you don't know why. Like, that's all that normal stuff. Then you add on the sickness and the constant appointments. My God, the appointments were relentless. Like, we got home from NICU and we were still back at the hospital all the time because the appointments kept going. And then you've got this voice in your head saying, you don't know who you are anymore. You're not doing a good job at this. You're a terrible mother and your baby would be better off without you. Mm like just bang it is just the absolute perfect storm
0: Mm. was there a moment when you know you put on nurse mode (laughs) (laughs) was there that moment where you snapped out of that and you took that step back and you took a breath and it all just came crumbling down
1: oh yeah (laughs) a couple of times probably the biggest turning point for me came Jasper had he had just turned or was about to turn nine months old. We'd gotten finally gotten rid of the the godforsaken feeding tube a couple of weeks before, and I was finally starting to feel like, okay, maybe I've got a handle on this now that you know the feeding tube's gone. You know, we were two surgeries down. We knew that the next surgery wasn't going to be coming for another few months, so we had a little bit of breathing space. I was starting to connect with other mums as well because I didn't really have any mum friends at all. So that's a game changer. You gotta have mum friends, my God. <laughs> so, you know, starting to do like normal things, like going to story time and that sort of thing. And one day I had said to my husband, I'm gonna take Jasper out today. And he was like, You sure you wanna do this on your own? Yep, yep, I'm gonna do this, it's gonna be fine. There we'll go to the markets, it'll be great, and we'll come home. And we, we had an awesome morning. Like he was such an awesome little dude and he was so happy and we had a great time. We got home and he was exhausted and he would not nap. And for all the other mums out there listening who hang out all day for that nap just so they can have a just quick minute to themselves, you know what I'm talking about here, I, I snapped. I don't feel good about it. I, I was mortified. I was embarrassed. I, it made me feel like the worst human on earth. But he would not stop. He was kicking, he was screaming, he was scratching me, he was biting Mm. me. You know, so exhausted, they just completely lose the plot. And I had no way to calm him down. And I, like, I'd been out and about all morning with my happy face on. Look at me, I'm being a mum. This is awesome. And by the time I got home, I just needed a minute to not be that happy mum. I just needed him to go to sleep so I could have a cup of tea and breathe for 10 minutes. And he would not give me that. <laughs> Obviously, not intentionally because he's a baby. But he like, he screamed and he screamed and he screamed. And then at one point I looked at him and I just screamed right back. And he screamed harder and I started crying and then he started thrashing. And then I, you know, picked up a pillow and threw it across the room. And like I was just not coping. And I will say at this point he was safe the entire time. He was in his cot. He's, you know, rolling around and kicking his cot. And I was sitting on the couch next to the cot and just i i was i didn't know what to do i did not know what to do and i screamed until my voice was hoarse not at him i was just i wasn't even screaming words like i just i just felt like i needed to scream and i just screamed and i had nothing left my voice was gone just was still bawling his eyes out and i just sat on the floor and i just cried and i cried and i sat there and i kept crying Eventually, Jasper cried himself out, and I picked him up and I held him and I bawled my eyes out on top of him, um, and he slept. But it was that was the moment I was like, "Wow, I'm really not okay. Like this, this is not a normal response. I should not be this exhausted and run down. That my only solution is to scream like this. This isn't okay." And then I remember thinking, maybe I'm better off just not being in his life if this ha- is how it's going to be. And then I was like, oh, crap, did I really just think that? So that that was my big, like, I know something's not right here. Yes, yeah, so it, was, it was scary. It was a really scary wake-up call. Yeah, it is
0: scary. And then those thoughts come, and this is nine months down the track. You have gone nine months of a really, if I can say it, a really shitty pregnancy. You've <laughs> yeah. then gone nine months... A really sick baby after a terrible birth. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. a year and a half of... Yeah. Not surprising that it happened at all. <laughs> and at this point, obviously you're saying, I know that something's really not right. What happened next?
1: Oh, over the next 12 months, things were pretty up and down. I was back on antidepressants. We decided that I needed a job. I needed something to do because being full-time carer for 12 months was not in my plan. Um it was that was hard on me. I'm not someone who can sit around and you know do laundry and cooking all day. Um I know some some mums love doing that and I wish I was one of them. But you and me <laughs> Yeah I I just I needed to be mentally stimulated and I needed to do something that was giving back. So I started working in community health Three months before COVID kicked off, Jasper had another two surgeries in the middle of the year done under really strict lockdown, which left him really bad separation trauma that we're still dealing with that fallout now. And then we had more diagnoses, you know, tested him for one thing and found something else and that had happened a couple of times and things were really just looking bleak. His fourth surgery happened in July 2020 and we got out of that and I went back to work a week or two later and i just thought i can't do this anymore i don't want to leave my family but i don't think i can still be here and live this life because i just i can't it's how many times can we go through this how many times can i you know pick myself up just to be knocked back down again with you know another diagnosis or another problem i don't see I can't envision a future where it's not this hard and it's not this painful and I don't want to be here for it. And that was that was the the next sort of big wake up call. So you know if I'm if I'm actively thinking in my head like how how can I not be here anymore? Mm. That's when we need a like things need to change. Um and I was really really fortunate that I linked in with an amazing GP and she she took me seriously. It wasn't Oh, you know, like you've just had a baby and things have been hard and COVID, like, you know, everyone's a bit depressed, you'll be fine. Like she actually, she took the time and she listened. You know, she said, did you go on antidepressants after he was born? I said, I did. She said, did they work? I thought, oh, do I tell her the truth or not here? So I said to everyone, oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine, everything's fine, I'm feeling much better. That was absolute bull. Um, they were doing nothing. I was not feeling fine um, and I said to her, to be honest, whatever I was on, was not working i told everyone that i was okay because i was scared that we were going to take my baby away from me if i didn't and he needed me because of how sick he was and i needed him so i put on put on my brave face and i pretended like the meds were doing their thing um they absolutely were not and she like i was it's sad that this is a state that things are in, but I was shocked that she wasn't judging me. Mm. Um, she was just incredibly empathetic. I said, okay, are you willing to try, you know, a different variety? Sure. She said, okay, but on the proviso that you need to actually be honest with me if they're not working because I'm a mum too. I know how hard it is and I need you to be okay for your son. I-, I can't help you do that if you're not honest. And it was just this, like this massive relief that, Okay, I'm being validated, and I'm being given a safe space to be honest, and I'm not gonna have any repercussions. Yeah, like it shouldn't be like that. Everyone should have that sort of experience with their GPS, but yeah, it was a really, really big moment for me, and that was that was sort of a turning point where there's there is actually help. I don't have to be like this. I don't have to think that my only way out is is to be not alive anymore. Yeah. And that that sort of opened up a a bit of a new way of of dealing with things. And I I guess the biggest change was that instead of constantly fighting it, like, you know, I've been fighting depression and fighting for anxiety for as long as I can remember. And I just thought one day you've been fighting and fighting and it's getting you nowhere. I need to stop fighting and just sit with it. Just be with it. It's part of me. It's on the bus, but it can't drive the bus. Sort of mm, analogy. Yeah, like it's you're not going to get rid of depression and anxiety. It's I always liken it to something like diabetes, where you know it's there. You've just got to manage it. You're never going to be cured of mental health. It's it's going to be around. But for me, I've now found that the best way to manage it is to is to let it be there. Um, yeah, and I think not ironically,
0: but ironically, when we actually validate. The anxiety and depression when we accept it when we sit with those uncomfortable feelings they 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 ease yep
1: absolutely yeah and I just think oh god I wish I'd learned that you know 20 years ago mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really helpful it's for me is saying okay I know I'm feeling really anxious about something that's my brain just trying to protect me but you know you're safe Yeah, you're safe it's okay but Wow, it's a long, slow process to actually learn. <laughs> I mean, especially when you
0: spend so long wanting to be recovered. That acceptance and commitment, I used to be so resistant to it. But yeah, it does take a
1: lot just learning to sit with it—that's that, a huge thing. Every time it, you know, would simmer back up again. I just thought, I don't want my son to grow up thinking that he is not allowed to have these feelings and emotions. Like, I want him to know that, you know, being depressed or anxious—it's not a character flaw. It's not a deficiency in your character. It's okay, you know. Just like you wouldn't say to someone who has diabetes, "Oh, you know, what's wrong with you?" Like, it just—we know now that mental illness does have a physical. Brain chemical component. We know that it's not just all in your head, and we know that saying to someone who's depressed, "Oh, you know, just cheer up," we know that's not going to cure it. So I do my very, very best to normalize that with Jasper. You know, he's four and a half, so we get a lot of big emotions on a very regular basis here, and we we do try to talk about it. And you know, the thing that we sort of say to him is, "It's okay to be angry. Mm. It's it's just not okay to hurt people if you're angry, but all your feelings are okay." You're allowed to be angry, you're allowed to be cranky, you're allowed to be excited, you're what whatever, it's fine. All those feelings are okay. Because I think that maybe our generation, generations before, those feelings obviously were not looked at as okay. And people were often told that, you know, if you are depressed, there really is something wrong with you. And it's it is a, a personality thing and you should fix that. And we know better now. And I don't want my kid to be feeling like there's something wrong with him just yeah. because he's not feeling it. And I mean, it is a big shift,
0: you know, when we're raised that there are good feelings, there are bad feelings and any bad feelings, we avoid them and we shame them and we shut them down. You yep. know, It takes a lot for ourselves to unlearn that, but then to model that to our kids. So again, well done you, because it's <laughs> yeah. huge. It is. And it's exhausting. I'm learning. Yeah. And I mean, just going back to your GP, what stood out to me was her saying, you need to be well to actually care about you and your health.
1: Of course. You know, you hear it all the time and it really does start to shit me sometimes. Oh, you know, you got to fill your own cup first. And okay, you do, but it's not as – it might not be that simple and it's really, really hard to know how to fill your own cup while you're balancing the needs of everyone else and feeling like you're not letting people down. And, you know, when you are anxious or depressed or – whatever else the case may be, makes filling that cup up so much harder because, for me, my depression and my anxiety tell me that I'm not worthy of having my cup filled. And so I know logically I can't help my kid if I'm unwell, but, you know, the devil on the shoulder says, yeah, but you don't really deserve to put yourself first. So,
0: yeah, it's really hard. In terms of your GP changing your medication, and she said, be honest with me, (laughs) did the new medication make any difference?
1: It did. Okay, cool. (laughs) We still have our really, really crap days, um, but knowing that I had that space to be honest about it made a big difference, and it it sort of really hit home to me. At the end of the call, she said, "Look, I one more thing I want you to do. Can you grab a pen and write down this number for the cat team, mm. which is like they're like the emergency mental health team crisis team, yeah, yeah." And I just I remember thinking oh my God, am I that person who needs phone number now? And that's what really drove it home that, okay, we're not messing around now. Mm. I, I do need to be honest about this because, you know, this lovely woman, she can't even see me in person. She's still managed to work out, hang on, this woman's in trouble here. That was really, really a light bulb moment. On the form, you'd written that
0: in addition to medication, used helplines, and I was just wondering... If there was a particular moment when you reached out to a helpline, was it the cat line? Yeah.
1: Um, I I had been seeing a psychologist who she was a perinatal psychologist and she was awesome. But through COVID, the appointment weights were ridiculous, mm. which obviously not her fault. I Like I work in health, I get it. Yeah. It's a mess but I found it really hard to have like a really in-depth session and then have to wait three four weeks for another one because I felt like I was leaving those sessions so raw and opened up and Mm. then I was just alone with all this heavy stuff and I I didn't feel good or safe or or okay processing it on my own knowing that I would not be able to speak to someone for another few weeks so I did eventually step away from doing those sessions because I was starting to feel like they were doing more harm than good. Mm. I did use the Lifeline chat I found incredibly helpful because it could be done as a chat. So I just, I could do it on my phone and, you know, I didn't have to actually speak to someone or set up anything. I I did have one chat that was really, really, really helpful and transformative where I was struggling doing all the mum stuff and I needed, I just needed to breathe. Like Jasper was in daycare three days a week and I worked those three days. And then the other two days that we were home, just me and him was trying to make sure he, you know, did story time and, you know, whatever other fun things. And we had to do activities and have play dates and go to the playground. And then it was, oh crap, I've also got to do laundry and buy the groceries and cook the dinner. There just, there wasn't time to do anything. And I'd gotten on a chat line and I was just, I was just at the end of my tether. I was in tears. It was in the middle of the night. So everyone else was asleep and I just could not stop sobbing into my pillow. And I chatted to this person and I said, I, just, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I think I need a day off, but like day off parenting, but how dare I need a day off my own child? That's horrible. And this person said, could you maybe trial popping them into daycare for four days a week? just give it a month and just see how you feel after that. I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Like to me, it was all or nothing. Mm. I hadn't even thought like, oh, maybe I could just try it and see if it feels comfortable. And it's the best thing we ever did because now I can work three and a half days a week if I need to and I've got half a day where I can play catch-up or if I can take half a day off work, I'll do all the chores in the morning and I can just sit down in the afternoon and have a chat with someone like you or have a cup of tea and read my book for an hour and it just it tops me back up again yeah. um that's one of those cup fillers and it was just just game changer something so small and then I spoke to someone else and I was like oh, you know I'm feeling really guilty about popping him into daycare four days a week and she's gone to me Jess you're four years old do you want to spend your day hanging out with your mum doing chores or do you want to spend your day playing with your friends like oh yeah, fair yeah, cool fair <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> yep and that took out that wiped out the guilt and, you know, you drop him off at daycare and you see how happy he is to be there. Like, okay, he's fine. <laughs> and this was through Lifeline. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I've spoken to a few of their their online counsellors now and they've just all been just, just kind you kind of think sometimes they might want to like rush through because, you know, there's going to be a lot of people waiting and you think, oh, you know, is this really that important? Again, goes back to, am I really worthy of being helped? But everyone I've ever spoken to on them has just been yeah, really, really kind, very patient. Even if you haven't typed anything back for a few minutes, I'll say, you know, are you still there? Do you need us to call help for you or anything like that? So, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And just talking it through with someone who is out of the situation, because, yeah, you yeah. Know, family and friends, they obviously want the best for us. So, they can be a bit biased, but to just be yeah. able to chat with someone who doesn't know what's going on and they can give you their, like, oh, how about this? How about that? Like, oh my God, I hadn't even thought of that. It's amazing. So, I'm a massive fan of chat lines. I think the people who staff them are incredible. I think they're a great resource, especially for mums. You know, you might have 10 minutes to chat on your phone while baby's asleep on your lap and all you can do is text. So I think those sort of things, they should be used a lot more.
0: In terms of those thoughts about, you know, the I don't want to
1: or I shouldn't be here anymore, they're
0: better off without me, what helped them, I like to say go away, but at least
1: turn down the volume a bit? Um, I think... it was starting to look after me again Mm. I think growing up being quite anxious and introverted you spend so much time trying to fit in to everyone else's expectations that you don't really know who you are so for me finding things that made me want to be here is what turned down the volume on those thoughts Mm. um Oh, the mum guilt though. Like, actually being able to make it okay for me to spend time away from my child to look after me was so hard. Mm. And it's silly sometimes. I still feel enormously guilty. But being able to do that and, you know, slowly start to work out who I am, not just as mum. Like who am actually I? Who do I want to be when no one else is around? That's what's helped me a lot because when you kind of know more who you are, you've got more of a reason to be around and to do the things you love, right? So way easier said than done, (laughs) to be honest. But that's that's sort of where where it started, I guess.
0: And what did that look like, you know, finding the things that made you who you are?
1: Um, For me, I, so before Jasper was born, I had every couple of months, I would sort of go away for a night on my own, like just say to Airbnb or something like somewhere cute in country like that, and I'd just have a night on my own to read a book or do some yoga and just sit down because my anxiety likes to pretend it's in control, so I like to write lists. <laughs> lists like to placate my anxiety. So I would literally I'll go away and take my notepad and a pen and I'll just sit down like, okay, what's going good right now? What's not going good? What do I wish I had more time to do? So I did that once COVID allowed us to move around again. I did that. And yeah, like I looked at the list and it was stuff that I always used to love doing when I was younger. And I love photography. I like drawing and watercoloring. I like making things and crafting. I just, I like creativity. It's like, okay, so how, how do I actually introduce that? in my day. So for me, it was then just looking at little things I can do. Cause you know, when you've got a small human in lockdown, you ain't got time for much. (laughs) So what I started, I love reading. So in my lunch break at work, instead of sitting there and scrolling on my phone for half an hour, I put my phone away, get out my book and I would read for my half hour lunch break. And like, that was something for me that I could do that like, that's easy at night at home. I would I've started like knitting heaps or embroidery so if I'm sitting at home watching TV as long as my hands are doing something it might be a coloring book or like whatever it is as long as I can do something while I'm watching TV that feels like that's something for me and as a result everyone's gotten baby blankets that I've knitted yep um what else obviously writing I love writing I didn't write at all really when I was pregnant because I was just that depressed that I I couldn't even pick up a pen but then as things as the fog kind of lifted a little bit when Jasper came home from hospital I, I had this idea to write a book about his condition because I got very frustrated when I started googling what he had when he was born it's like surely there's better information so I thought okay I'm gonna I'm gonna put this to use so I started and like, when I say in little dreams and drabs, I mean, I would have Jasper asleep on my chest and I'd have my laptop balanced on my knee. And I'm like Googling medical journal articles while he's snoring in my ear for 10 minutes at a time. And that's like slowly, slowly. And, you know, a book came out of that, which is great. And that's sort of like, oh, yes, I can still write. And I do still have something worth saying that might help people. And I just sort of got back into that again. And yeah, that's, that's brought me back to life the most, I think. Which then led to
0: the children's book with your sister. Correct. And then yes. obviously your memoir. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess my question, what do you wish you had to support you potentially through the cycles when you're trying to conceive, through your very difficult pregnancy, post birth, um, <laughs> NICU journey, all the surgeries that came even months after? What supports do you wish were there or anything that looking back might have just validated your experience?
1: Honestly, things like this podcast, these resources are just so invaluable because I think when you're going through it, it's very easy to think this is just me. No one else is dealing with this. And I didn't know about these podcasts until I needed them, obviously. But oh my God, listening to podcasts where people are talking about these sort of stories, seeing Instagram accounts and Instagram posts, reading blog posts, just for anyone who's brave enough to share, they have no idea how validating it is to someone else who might be going through it. That's what I needed. I needed to know that it wasn't just me. I didn't have to go through it on my own. I needed to hear from someone that yelling at your baby once doesn't make you a bad mum or needing to have antidepressants doesn't mean that they're going to take your baby away from you. Just I needed to know that there wasn't something wrong with me. A lot of people sort of say, "Oh, you know, don't you feel a bit uncomfortable talking about this sort of stuff?" I'm like, well. What's the point of going through all this stuff if you're not going to be able to help someone else through it? Like writing writing the memoir was rough. I paused writing it for about six or eight months because it was just too heavy and I don't think I was healed enough. Mm. Um, but like the more I rehashed it, the more I rewrote it, the easier it was to accept it. But God, if it helps somebody else know that actually you're okay, you're safe, you're okay, there's not something wrong with you, it's totally worth it. So Massively appreciate you doing this. Um, I know it must not be easy to rehash people's trauma over and over again, especially when you have your own. But truly, this these resources are completely invaluable. They're, I think, they're more helpful to me than any amount of medication, any amount of you know psychologists. Just hearing from real people that have had real experiences, it's that's amazing.
0: I mean you as well you do share so openly online and yes people will say oh don't you feel uncomfortable well yeah but as with everything with our feelings as well why are we
1: shying away from uncomfortable things sanitize everything that's that's not how life is it's messy and it's dirty and it's painful and we're all in it
0: together (laughs) yeah what do you wish a mum feeling that it's hard what do you wish they knew
1: um I would say you're right it is hard it is absolutely hard and people don't like to talk about that or acknowledge it, but they're not forever. I know that's cliche. I hate hearing all these, oh, you know, it's a season and it'll pass, but as shitty a cliche as they are, they're true. You know, we grow, our kids grow, things are going to change. We're going to, you know, learn more and know more and know better, um, but you can't get all the advantages of learning more and knowing more without going through some hard stuff first but you don't have to go through it on your own. So use some of the resources that are out there. I think you'll find and like a lot of the mums that you've had on here, if you, if you find a mum who's been through some of this stuff, they'll talk to you about it. I've reached out to plenty of mums through Instagram, like reach out. I think social media gets a bad rap, mm. but I've found that the mum community has actually been incredible. Yeah. Um, if you're a mum out there and you're struggling, reach out to someone, you know, just look after yourselves, look after each other. It's hard. Mm. It is hard. You're not imagining it, yeah. um, but it doesn't have to be hard on your own. And that's pretty good advice, I think. <laughs>
0: and that's a nice message to end on. Thank you so much, Jess, for coming on Thank and chatting you. to all Thank of us you. today. And congratulations on your books. Thank you. I do think that they will they will reach people who need them.
1: Yeah, as long as it's, it's helpful for someone else. You know, like you keep your journals to get your own stuff out, but if you're going to put it in a book form, it's got to be for other people. So I hope it helps.
0: Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.